0: Hey, good morning, Reach Montreal and everybody who's joining us for our online service today. Uh, thank you for coming as we look uh, to continue our series, Hope for Exiles, looking at the letter of 1 Peter. And I just want to start with a question before we jump in and as we jump in. What is the first thing that comes to mind for you when you hear the word holy? When you hear the word holiness? What is Holiness. Just what image or what idea, what definition of holiness kind of pops into your mind when you hear that word? What, is it? what does it look like? What does holiness sound like? What does holiness act like? And we'd have lots of different answers to that question, depending on your background and mind, for sure. But I think for many of us, what would be typical is that holiness really is doing certain things. It's a behavior that you do. That holiness is something that's exhibited in what you and I do. So whether it's you attend church or you give money or you volunteer your time or you pray or you read your Bible or or you dress a certain way or you smile a lot, uh, there could be lots of different things that we do and we attach to holiness. But then there's also the flip side of that, that holiness sometimes is just all the stuff that you also don't do, avoiding certain behaviors. So you know, don't drink, don't smoke or chew or hang with those who do, right? Um, sex outside of marriage or dancing or going to places that God, you know, doesn't approve or, or swearing or saying curse words or listening to secular music or secular movies, that all those things kind of get wrapped up too in a, in a traditional understanding of holiness. And what that leaves us with is holiness ends up being reduced very quickly to behaviors to either be avoided or practiced. And for us in the West, as we've gone through this series and looked at Christendom, the idea that Christian ethics and morals and values are no longer at the center of our Western culture, but moved to the margins, as Christendom has kind of crumbled under our feet in the West, what we've done is we've struggled. We've really struggled to define holiness biblically. And rather rather than see holiness biblically, as kind of a redemptive engagement of culture. We've either kind of disengaged from culture and ignored culture at large altogether, or we've absorbed culture entirely and conformed to the norms and ethics of our cultural moment. And this has kind of happened in one of two ways, just really quickly. Uh, it, it's, it's either happened through just kind of like staunch legalism. This is like just religious Ness, right? Just a religiosity about things where in, in legalism we lean entirely away from culture and, and we make our own subculture of Christianity. So you know secular things are bad. So we make Christian versions that are honestly just worse than the secular ones, right? And, and so legalism keeps rules and obeys laws and then really just looks down on others who don't. And legalism is very unloving and unhelpful in its witness to the world. Legalism tends to even go farther than God does in where red tape is kind of put up. Legalism puts up red tape where God doesn't. Legalism speaks on topics where God doesn't and tends to take open-handed issues, things that can kind of be discussed and debated about and makes them close-handed issues. Legalism majors on minors and in, in the process ignores what truly is important. A couple examples would be like the Bible teaches not to get drunk, but we forbid drinking alcohol altogether. Or the Bible encourages open, honest prayer and speaking to God, but then we mandate certain ways to pray or certain things to say. The Bible encourages celebration through song and instrument and dance, but we decide which instruments and dance moves are of the Lord. Legalism does all sorts of things like this. And the classic version of legalism that we see throughout the Bible are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were always working really hard at maintaining kind of an outer appearance and always working on the outside and working at externals so that they would be morally and ethically superior to others. Jesus has very harsh, very stern words for Pharisees during his life and ministry. In Matthew 23, there's kind of this passage of woes that Jesus... Um, shares with the Pharisees and talks directly to them. He says that they preach what they don't practice. They want their deeds to be seen by others, that they're hypocrites, they're blind guides, they're sons of hell, they're they're a brood of vipers. Then he says to them, woe to you, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are whitewashed tombs, meaning you're dead. All this life that you're pretending to have on the outside is not producing true life in you. So that, that form that, that form of legalism doesn't, doesn't actually give us life. It doesn't actually produce something that would point to the beauty and goodness and love and grace of God. It doesn't, doesn't work. But the second way that we've done this is we've leaned away from legalism and we've swung the pendulum so far that we've gone entirely into liberalism. Or license. The word licentiousness is an old school word, but license, which means we've we've kind of leaned so far into culture that we've entirely lost all distinction from culture, that that we've ended up ignoring all moral prescriptions of the Bible. So the Old Testament laws don't apply to me because I'm a New Testament Christian, right? And, and all prescription prescriptive morals or laws are kind of well, hey man like that, that's that's a buzzkill. Martin Luther, the reformer, called this antinomianism, anti-law, and that that's not the gospel, but it's so widespread today. This view of the law is so widespread. What it ends up doing is it, it trivializes and it ignores all moral prescriptions, which the Bible is full of them, Old Testament and new. Because we're saved by the grace of God, we think that laws no longer apply and moral prescriptions are no longer worth paying attention to. But that's not what Jesus teaches about the law either. In this view, conviction of sin and repentance is often downplayed and it's viewed as kind of negative or anti-grace. So you hear people say stuff like, hey, God knows my heart. If anyone questions your beliefs or your lifestyle or your behavior, they're a Pharisee, right? Right? It, what this ends up doing is it really just says, "Well, God, you know, Jesus didn't really mean that about sexuality. He didn't really mean that about my money. That, that hey, that was cultural. Hey, you know what? Paul said that. That was that was Paul. Don't be so uptight. Me and Jesus are good. Nobody's perfect." And it kind of comes out in all these little cute sayings. But with with liberalism and 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 license, what ends up happening is you're always the exception to the rule. <laughs> You always have a reason or a list of reasons why clear biblical teachings and moral commands don't apply to you. It's very dangerous. It's dangerous because it fails to take both sin and the grace of God seriously. It takes sin lightly and it cheapens the cost of grace. Sin is something that's viewed as being managed and tolerated instead of killed. And instead of freedom from sin, we see our life as Christians as a freedom to sin. And it takes very important sayings from Jesus, like, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And you take that to mean, if you love me, you can do whatever you want. And that's also not how Jesus wants us to think about holiness, the idea of holiness. So enter Peter. Before we jump into these verses, let me pray as we jump in to see what Peter is doing with holiness and why he is calling exiles to holiness in particular. Uh, Father, we just thank you that we can still connect like this and you can use you know technology and online platforms to still give us an opportunity to do this together as a church and for visitors and, and people that are jumping in and, and coming along with us in this journey. I just thank you for them. I just pray that this morning would be used, that you would use your word as you only can to just open our mind, open our heart, open our eyes to things that we need to see, that God, you would do a work in our hearts that would lead to transformed lives, lives that that engage culture well, but distinctly because of your good news, Jesus. So we invite you into this time that it would make much of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So enter Peter. If you remember this series so far, Peter's just been kind of coming at strangers, at exiles, at a church that doesn't belong that are geographically and physically removed, yes, but even more so at a moral and ethical level, they're very different, they're, they're strangers, they're aliens to this host culture of the Roman Empire. And so Peter's writing and just kind of unpacking several things for them to think through and, and reflect on as they develop an, an identity that, that can engage culture well, but also be distinct from culture. And here's what he says in verse 13 through 16 of chapter 1. So, prepare your minds for action and exercise self control. This is already pretty countercultural. Put your hope fully on the grace that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Future tense. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't be conformed into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then before you came into this. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Now that's quite a mouthful and you feel the weightiness of that. It's like, well, be holy in all that you do in everything that you do. Peter later will will call the church a holy people and a holy nation and a royal and holy priesthood. And then he also will take Old Testament symbols like the temple and he'll call the church living stones that we individually are living stones that the temple of God is now the church. It's us, Jew and Gentiles who have come into this saving and redemptive relationship with Christ. But notice what Peter does say is he takes holiness and he doesn't just drive it at you and I personally, but that he shows us that holiness is actually a communal identity. That it's actually a communal identity that confronts culture with an alternative way of living, that it goes against how they used to live. You saw that. That he says, don't don't just kind of lean back into your old ways, because back then you didn't know any different. You didn't have an alternative. You didn't know kind of the kingdom ethic that, that invites you to a fuller, more, more beautiful life. You only knew that. You only knew that ethic. And this new identity that Peter is, is parsing out throughout the letter is what leads to new activities, not the other way around. That it's a new identity as a holy people, as a holy nation being formed that leads to distinct activities, that leads them to an engagement and disengagement of cultural norms in different ways. And I love that he says it in the plural, that it's a communal identity. It's not just about personal, private morals and decisions and beliefs, that this is a different kind of people, that this is a people that are bound together by their worship of a different God, the God that's distinct. And that, The flip side of that is that it also means that as a communal people, as a community, that there is now a rejection of non-gods that are worshipped by culture at large. And so Peter is saying, remember how you used to live and what you used to value and the things you used to pour yourself out for. Don't drift back into that because now you've been set apart. And personal holiness and private holiness only happens in the context of being a part of this holy people, being a part of this renewed community. And we've struggled with this in the West because of our individualism. That's why we've drifted into either legalism or liberalism with our our ideas of holiness. We've made it about behaviors that me, privately, personally, I do or do not do. When in reality, biblically, Holiness is a distinct identity of a people and that people, not perfect, but distinct, distinctly points to the God who they worship. So there's a confrontational aspect to holiness here. And what Peter's doing when he does this is as we pointed out before, Peter is following in line with kind of the Old Testament prophetic voice. And he's following in line with the swipe of the prophets' call to exiles in particular to be holy. And if you go through the Old Testament prophets, they are constantly calling for Israel as they're displaced and strange and disenfranchised to live holy lives. It is the kind of major point and motif throughout all of the prophetic calls of the Old Testament to distinguish yourself from the wider culture, to be set apart. That there are specific ways to think and live as exiles as you resist the norms and ethics of the host culture. That that's what exiles do. They don't just fit in. They don't just kind of um, end up looking and behaving and thinking and, and valuing everything everyone else does. They don't just conform to the host culture's way of doing things. They are simultaneously in the host culture, engaging it, but at the same time, disengaging from the ethics of that host culture. That's, that's holiness. And Peter is reminding followers of Jesus and calling them to embrace and remember their identity as, as aliens, as strangers, to embrace the otherness in the way that they live their lives. And this is not just a call for the first century church or for Old Testament Israel in exile. This is a call for the church in every day. The church for all times, all people that would call themselves followers of Jesus and enter into this communal identity as a holy people. This otherness though, this strangeness, how is it expressed? That's what we want to kind of get at then. What does this holiness look like? Well, the way that Peter is going to kind of unpack it for the rest of the letter is that this holiness is an alternative moral, ethical, and social vision of how life is to be lived in light of who God is. It's kind of all encompassing. And this is why Peter doesn't just have holiness as a subcategory of like morals, of being a good person or having good morals, but that he actually says it's, it's about all you do in everything you do. All of your conduct, Peter says. Holiness is the call. In the rest of the letter, Peter unpacks what this holiness looks like in marriage, in hospitality, in loving of neighbor, in responding to ridicule and criticism, in how to engage your community, in leadership within the church and leadership outside the church how to relate to civil authority and government. And he just kind of unpacks it and pushes it into all of these spheres to show us that holiness isn't a subcategory of life, that holiness is actually something that happens in the real stuff of life. It engages all areas of life and simultaneously engages all spheres of culture with an alternative vision, an alternative vision of what is good and right and true and beautiful and ultimately glorifying to the god who has created this community in the first place so properly understood properly understood and peter is just kind of doing such a good job to just call our attention to this properly understood holiness is is social distinction holiness is nonconformity holiness is moral and ethical resistance that's why Peter starts with, with like, get ready for action. Not passively disengage, but, but get, get clear-headed. Get ready to act and engage. Because holiness is a revolutionary communal identity. That it's an alternative and superior vision of how we are to live. Now that puts holiness in a completely different category. Not just settling for a subcategory or subcultural morality, but this is actually an engagement, a resistance of a revolutionary identity of a people that are formed around this living God. That's awesome. Uh, Lee Beach, in his book, Church in Exile, he he calls holiness engaged nonconformity. I love that. It's engaged nonconformity at the same time, right? With with, with all our cultural talk about non non-con, nonconformity, and I don't conform to these kind of labels. It's amazing like, that that we see that holiness is actually the call of the church to engage culture with a nonconformity in its ethical vision. It's beautiful. Here's what Beach writes about this. So helpful. He says exilic holiness. So holiness for exiles is fully engaged with culture while not fully conforming to it. Living as a Christian exile in Western culture calls the church to live its life constructively embedded within society while not being enslaved to all of its norms and ideals. So notice that true holiness is very active but it's not just moral and ethical perfection. Holiness is not just moral and ethical perf- perfection. What it is though, it's moral and ethical distinction. And so that means that if we are a part of this communal identity, that, they, that we have this identity in Christ, saved by the grace of God and formed as a holy nation and a holy people it means that We actually think and speak and value and live differently than those who don't know the holy God. Becoming holy includes morals, but it means so much more than just morals. Holiness is about what we don't do and what we do, but it's also about engagement and disengagement. It's about resistance and confrontation of what the world is doing too. Super important to understand that. So this vision of holiness that Peter is calling our attention to we have to understand it's not it's not new. Peter didn't come up with this. It's not unique to him. This is actually a complete throwback to Leviticus 19. And there's other Old Testament passages that Peter is using here. We don't have time to unpack all of them, but in Leviticus, you know that book in the Old Testament that most of you skip in your annual readings? Yeah, that that one. But in Leviticus Chapter 17 through 26, it's called the purity code. And that's all the weird laws that we're just kind of like, I don't, I don't get it, I don't understand. Why, why are you talking about that? Why are you talking about that bodily function, right? But what it is, that purity code is, is what it does is it does so much more than just kind of weird laws about how to clean ourselves. It actually covers all sorts of things that we see Jesus double back on in his Sermon on the Mount, a new kingdom ethic, right? About a new holy people. So Leviticus, the the purity code, Leviticus 17 through 26 covers love of neighbor, uh, family life, marriage, marital relationships. It covers care for the poor and the marginalized. It talks about employee rights. Uh, It talks about justice and social compassion and sexual integrity and, and racial equality and business practices. It covers all of that. It's amazing. But not as individuals living morally pure lives. And instead, as a communal identity of a people who now do everything in light of who God is. That's the call of Leviticus. And in Leviticus 19.2, you'll see, this is what Peter quotes here. You shall be holy as I am holy, God says to Israel. Not to everyone, to Israel, okay? And now, 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 holiness is a huge topic. But just to sum it all up, what holiness means, and when it says that God is holy, it's, it's to be wholly other. It's to be distinct. It's to be totally set apart and different than anything else. Yes, it's to be morally blameless for sure, but in, in, in real terms, it's to be out of this world. It's to be like none other. That's what holiness means. And many scholars have identified God's holiness as the trait, the main trait of God throughout the Old Testament, especially when, Yahweh as a God is compared to the other gods on offer in the ancient world. To know God in the Old Testament is to know God's holiness. That he's not like other gods. That he's not like other non-gods. That he's not like other objects of worship. And we don't have time to do all of this, but scholars often agree that the purity code of Leviticus actually came into its final written form during the 6th century BC in Babylonian exile. Meaning that this text actually came into its final form to speak to a community in exile that needed to be reminded of their identity and called to relate to a holy God and society differently. That they were supposed to be set apart that they were called to be holy because the God that they professed knowing and worshiping is holy. So just notice, holiness isn't something that is attained by you and I by living different lives morally. Holiness is entirely, from start to finish, Old Testament, New Testament, it's entirely a supernatural work of God and, and his transforming power as he forms a people for himself. So, so in real terms, you don't become holy. You are made holy. Holiness isn't a moral status we work towards. It's a relational status we receive. So it follows that if you and I are in relationship with the holy God, the distinct, unique, set-apart God who is like nothing and no one else, we are gonna notice There's going to be changes in us. As Peter says, don't don't drift back to your former ways. You can't once you've come and tasted and seen the goodness of the holy God, you just can't. And that doesn't mean you're always gonna nail it. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to drift. I think that's why Peter is reminding them not to because it is so easy to drift. But Peter takes their eyes off of their own moral performance or their own moral failures and takes their eyes and shoots them right back to the holy God who saved them in the first place. And that's exactly what he does in verse 18 and 19, showing them that they don't, they don't become holy. They're made holy. Watch what he says. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See what Peter says here, you were ransomed, okay? You were rescued. What is he doing there? Well, those are key words. He's taking his audience and he's pointing them right back to the rescue from slavery and the exodus. The idea of the Passover lamb and having the Passover lamb, having the blood shed of that lamb so that they are rescued out of captivity from their slave owners in Egypt. And what they're doing, what he's doing here is he's reminding them of a new exodus, a new Passover that has secured a new rescue to new life. And in Mark ten forty five, Jesus does the same thing where he says, the son of man speaking about himself did not come to be served, but to serve and give what? His life as a ransom for many. Now that word ransom that Peter uses and that Jesus uses here, it's it's a slave market term. And what it means is to buy back. It means to purchase someone out of slavery in a powerless state and bring them home into a family and give them a new identity. And Peter is just unpacking this here and showing us that the same thing that happened back in Exodus with the Passover and the release from slavery is the same thing that is newly and freshly applied through the work of Christ. That you and I, whether you know it or not, we are enslaved to non-gods and false gods that demand our attention and tell us that they are worthy of our life. And we get enslaved to these things. And we get in cycles of behavior. We get in cycles of spending. We get in cycles of relationships that ultimately just enslave us. But there's freedom. There's freedom from that. And in Exodus 19 and 20, when we see the first Exodus, the release from captivity, what God does right away is he frees them from slavery and then he gives them the 10 commandments. He frees them from slavery and then he gives them the law. Now this has always been God's order, always, that God saves and rescues and shows up and flexes his muscles and redeems people and then he tells them how to live free. God shows up flexes, frees people, then says, if you're gonna remain free, live like this. That's God's grace. That's the act of God's grace. God doesn't roll into Egypt, drop the 10 commandments and say, nail those and then maybe I'll get you out of here. I'll get you out of this mess you got yourself into. He shows up, sheds innocent blood that ultimately is foreshadowing the blood of Jesus Christ one day to come and he releases them from slavery frees them and then says, here's how to stay free. So, so often we look at holiness and we look at law as restrictive. And so no, my my autonomy, my freedom, but no, the true purpose of the law is freedom. It's to stay free. It's to protect us from all the things that will come and enslave us. And so all, everything the Exodus does is, is God just goes, I've freed you, now go live like it. God frees slaves so that they can live free. And that's the same thing that's accomplished by the gospel. It's the same thing that Jesus claims to do by ransoming all people from their sin. It's the same thing that Peter is stressing here, that a holy people are those who are set free. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, Paul, the apostle Paul reflects similarly. He says, he has saved us and he has called us to a holy life. So he, he saved us first, then he called us to a holy life not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The order is so important there. It's because of God's grace and mercy and love that he pursues people who are enslaved and frees them and then tells them how to stay free. And that is what holiness looks like when it's working out, when it's showing up. Jesus's church is called to an alternative ethical vision, an alternative life because we serve this God who is set apart and distinct and holy. And Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount does, does all of this. This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. It's an inauguration speech for a king that's coming in with a new kingdom and releasing slaves for a new exodus and a new life. And he unpacks all of it. And right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a very short statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 6, 8. And he just says, don't be like them. <laughs> I love that. Like the whole Sermon on the Mount can be just reduced and summarized by don't live like them. Don't be like them. Meaning not pejorative or negative like them, those guys. But he's saying there's gotta be a distinction. All of Jesus's teachings and the Sermon on the Mount in particular are painting this picture of a kingdom people who are called to be distinct from the world and influencers of the world. Different from culture, but simultaneously influencers of culture. It's an ethical confrontation of worldviews and a way of life. That's the mission of the church. And honestly, we, we struggle today with this. We struggle. Because... In the West, we we think that relevance, cultural relevance, is the mission of the church. As if being accepted or cool is the the way that we kind of get the gospel out to people who don't know Jesus. And and honestly, this is such a modern and unbiblical idea of Christian mission that we, we should be accepted and affirmed by culture or that we need to be accepted and affirmed by culture. If you go through the pages of Christian history, allegiance to Christ, doesn't make you more cool. Allegiance to Christ leads to being arrested, killed, fed to lions, sawed in half, boiled alive, crucified upside down, having your houses torched and your families kidnapped and killed. Fun. That's the Christian witness. Not, not to fight to kind of be accepted by culture as if we need that. So, so just hear me on this. I'm not saying that your future or mine is is to be fed by lions, but what I am saying is that, that if your goal is to be liked by everyone and fit into this cultural moment and just live a nice life, then Christianity is not for you. It's not. And more importantly, if that's your goal, you will make no real lasting impact on the world. You will just fit in and then die. That's the reality. And Jesus is so bold in his call to the church just to wake us up out of this. In Luke 6, 26, he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. (laughs) Like like it's in there, like Jesus said that. In other words, you're in a bad place. You're in a dangerous place. If you claim to be a Christian and everyone likes you, You've, you've conformed. You've conformed to the wrong view of reality. You've confronted nothing and no one with the kingdom ethic that you're called to. You've done nothing. That's such a strong call from Jesus and it ought to wake us up. It ought to draw our eyes, not just to our own moral imperfection, but to his holiness and and a, a cry to the holy God to make us holy, to set us apart so that we may engage a culture that doesn't know our God. Now there's power. There's true witness. Um, Pastor John Stott defined persecution as the clash of two irreconcilable value systems. Uh, I think that's, that's super important. I think that's super helpful. Two irreconcilable value systems. So I know in the West here, again, we're not being fed to lions, and persecuted like that, whereas brothers and sisters around the world are, are literally losing their lives and families because of their allegiance to Christ. We're not, but what we are seeing is we are seeing persecution in the sense that we're experiencing a very real clash of two irreconcilable value systems. The problem is that we've tried to reconcile them. <laughs> we've tried to just file off abrasive, sharp, uncomfortable edges of the gospel and the kingdom ethic and tried to reconcile them to the value system of our host culture. And it just, it won't work. And you either lose the gospel or you lose Christian mission or both. And it's very dangerous. So lovingly, if Jesus fits easily and comfortably into your Western, modern, secular worldview, it's not Jesus. It's not him. The gospel and the Jesus and the Christ of the gospel, when rightly defined and confessed, will never fit into secular culture at any moment in history. It won't. The second that the gospel ceases to confront cultural ethic and redeem it, it ceases to be the gospel. And again, my favorite preacher of the last generation, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher, Summed it up so beautifully, watch this. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. When? It should never be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, but rather to be as different from everybody else who is not a Christian as we can possibly be. The more like Christ we become, the better and the more like him we become the more we shall be unlike everybody else who is not a christian and that's not done in a judgmental way that's not done in an unloving critical way that's not done with legalism where we just we just throw we just lob criticism and unloving things about the secular culture that's not that What it doesn't mean though, is that we are distinct and set apart so that we show and put on display a beautiful view of reality because this Holy God has redeemed an unholy people and then sent us out into the world. As Jesus says to be salt and light, to go out there and preserve and redeem and confront, but eventually beautify and call things out of darkness into light. A little bit later, Peter in chapter two, verse 12, he says, live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Isn't that amazing? Live good lives, different, distinct than the pagans. And and Peter doesn't say pagans in a pejorative negative sense. Again, that's just the word that means somebody who is not a professing believer in God, right? So just live a different, live a good life in their presence, in their view so that when the watching world sees the church live and and breathe and do and and be on mission and serve and love and treat everything differently that their eyes may be actually pulled to the God that we worship and they may glorify God too. That's exciting that we have that opportunity that we're even called and invited on that mission. So, So in other words, the purpose of holiness is mission. It's a communal identity of holiness that it becomes missional. Because why? Well, because it engages and it confronts and invites culture to reconsider their beliefs and practices. And unfortunately, so much of the church today treats money, material things, sexuality, success, family, anything, name it, the same as our culture, and then wonders why our witness to the watching world isn't producing change. There's nothing distinct about us. Yet, we regret that nobody wants to know about the God that we profess to know. We need to do better. We need a call to holiness. We need to thrive as exiles. Distinct, set apart. Because our God is holy. Because our God is set apart. Because our God is out of this world. But he's out of this world and then he became a man and came into this world to save us and rescue us. And we are community-wise, as a communal identity, are witnesses to that being true. And sometimes our witness falls so short because we lose track of our mission. Um, Pastor John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, just an amazing mind. Uh, He identifies three categories where this shows up the most, this kind of confrontation. He he says sex, power, and money. These are the main topics that if we engage culture about their views and their presuppositions and their worldview and values around sex, power, and money, then we're already ahead of the game as far as how we're missionally engaging. He calls those three, three things the idolatrous trinity that defines our culture's ethical vision. Uh, that's a lot of smart words, uh, but, but what he's getting at is these three things. If we engage culture on these three topics, we will have conversations and confrontations that, that end up leading to redemptive moments of hope and mission. That's that's beautiful. Tim Keller, also pastor in New York City, um, says it very similarly. Listen to what he says here. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. Look what he identifies. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. Sound familiar? A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. There's something strikingly different about the early church. There's something strikingly different that the watching world can kind of, you know, brush them to the side, ignore what they're saying, ignore how they're living, but but they can't actually ignore them because they're set apart and distinct and different. So today, in our current cultural kind of exile that we're feeling as the church, if your views, if your views of, of sex and marriage or personhood and your body or your views of the unborn and abortion and the dignity of human life or your views of the treatment of money and how you spend your paycheck or how you spend your time is the same as the dominant cultural ethic, then they are not Christian beliefs. They're not. Those beliefs are not marked by holiness. They're not marked by engaged nonconformity. They're marked by sin and conformity. We need to do better. And that's what Peter's driving at. That's what Peter's drawing his audience's eyes to. That's what Peter is drawing our eyes to. So what does it look like? Well, elect exiles... Strive for sexual purity and self-control over the indulgence and pornification and objectification that we see in our culture. That's holiness. We strive for honesty in personal and business practices over selfish gain. That's holiness. We strive for love of stranger and neighbor instead of drifting into stereotypes and caricatures and political labels of people. That's holiness. We prioritize generosity over accumulation That's holiness. We live lives of humble submission to one another and serving one another rather than trying to push to the front of the line of culture and clamor for attention and influence and power. That's holiness. So just just hear me. If you're a follower of Jesus, is your life distinct from those who don't follow Jesus? When you look at, just take inventory of your life, and you look at your friends and your peers and your co-workers and your family members and your neighbors who don't know Jesus, is your life any different at all? Not perfect, different. Not moral perfection, moral distinction. And if it's not, why not? Have you just conformed? Do you need to Reconsider whether you are actually living a holy life in light of the holy God that you profess to follow. Our mission is at stake with these questions. Your life is at stake with these questions. And as John Calvin said, God justifies no one whom he does not also sanctify. God is not done with you. God is not done with me. God is not done with our church. God is not done with the church. He is calling us to a holiness that that shows up, (laughs) that, that confronts culture in a loving way and then offers them a better vision of life, a true ethic that leads to flourishing, a true life in the living God where we, as Peter says, put all our hope and it changes all we do. That's our call. It's a lofty call. It's a huge call. It's a heavy call, but there is nothing else worth giving our life to as followers of Jesus than pursuit of the holy God who has formed a holy people to be sent into the world to redeem it. Let me leave you with these words from Lee Beach one more time, just because he sums it up so well for us. He says, "Today, an application of God's holiness is a holiness that emphasizes living engaged but non-conformed lives." that are guided by love and exercise genuine, abundant grace that will enable the church to distinguish itself as an alternative holy people and thus serve the culture from the margins. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for you. Let me pray for us. God, you are so out of this world, so distinct, so set apart, so different. You are transcendent and outside of all things, yet make yourself known and imminent to us through the work of your son, Jesus. And we're humbled by that. I just pray that with a message like this, that you'd use Peter's words not to just heap on guilt and shame about our moral failures, but that you would use this as a fuel to ignite a desire for holiness a moral nonconformity, an engagement with our culture over ideas that ultimately do not give us life. That for us at Reach Montreal, you would form us around the gospel, the kingdom ethic, the kingdom vision that, that ultimately you have set us free and then set us loose into a culture that doesn't know you. I pray that we would reflect this well in spirit. I pray that you would empower us and give us the ability to do it. This is not something, holiness is not something we aspire to. It's not something that we go and grasp at for ourselves. It's something that's given to us. So now God, humbly, we ask for more of that, more power. We ask that you would just convict our hearts of areas of our life that we've just kind of like pushed this to the side and not thought about it. That we haven't even challenged our own, that we haven't even had eyes on our own conduct. I pray that you would challenge us and convict us so that you would pick us up and send us out into a culture that needs to know you. We love you. We invite you into all of this and ask all of these things. In the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.